This is A Confused Heap of Facts, the podcast where we have a discussion about history with the faculty of the Department of Military History and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. This is Dr. Jonathan Abel here with Dr. Bill Nance. Hello. And today we're going to talk to Dr. Lou DeMarco. Hello. Who is, among many other things, an expert on urban warfare. And that's our topic for today. Uh, so, Dr. DeMarco, let's start with a very basic uh, kind of overview. Uh, what role do cities play in warfare historically, and what problems do they pose for armies? Okay. Um, contrary, probably, to a lot of popular opinion, uh, cities in the history of warfare, I would argue, have played a central role, uh, in fact, uh, a pivotal role, and, um, and, the, uh, and they cause problems for armies because they greatly uh, increase the, uh, the power of uh, the defensive forces and because, generally speaking, they are positions such that uh, they uh, control decisive uh, aspects of uh, of capabilities that uh, that armies or uh, that are the objective of armies or the political objectives of the war, and therefore they can't be avoided. So you're talking population centers, major crossroads, confluences of rivers, ports, logistics yeah. hubs. Well, yeah. Uh, on the military side, there's those pure purely military uh, characteristics that any general would want in the sense of, uh, you know, a population or a correction, a, a transportation hub or key terrain that dominates a broad avenue of approach. Uh, but even more important are political considerations. Uh, war is about politics and politics is centered in cities. And therefore, if you want to uh, control or eliminate uh, the political base, you got to go to where that political power comes from, and that's in cities. Political power is based on populations, population centers, especially the affluent population uh, mm -hmm. is in cities. Wars often not about politics, but about economics. Economic centers are in cities, you mm -hmm. know, for a variety of reasons. And then uh, often wars about religion. And uh, religious, uh, the major religions of the wor world that, uh, especially the hierarchical religions, their uh, their uh, centers are located in cities. And of course, obviously, we're talking predominantly about Islam and uh, and Christianity. And so there's a there's far more non-military reasons uh, that drive armies to go into cities. Uh, that they would rather bypass if it was just based on political or correction, just based on military considerations. Mm -hmm. well, and and is there in your mind a substantial difference between a city that is fortified that has a significant um, 
fortification structure around it, or a city that's unfortified but is still a dense gathering of buildings? In pre-early modern and earlier times, there's a major difference. In modern times, not much difference. Uh, ancient fortifications can have and have had in modern war, talking 20th century war, uh, 21st century war, ancient fortifications can affect modern military operations because they become significant uh, man-made obstacles that you have to deal with, right. but not to the extent that they had an impact in uh, early modern, uh, pre-20th uh, century, and ancient uh, military operations where the fortifications of the city, uh, the man-made fortifications of the city were central to uh, how both the defense and the offense operated. Nowadays, for example, in 1967, when, uh, when the Israeli army uh, recaptured or captured uh, the uh, Jordanian-dominated part of Jerusalem, the Israeli army had to deal with the ancient city walls of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and that caused them some tactical problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they were tactical problems that they were able to deal with, and they weren't the major focus of the campaign. But if you dig down deep, uh, you'll find uh, in 1945, uh, the uh, early modern fortifications in the uh, city of Manila caused the American army mm-hmm. uh, problems. Or uh, Way City in 1968. Uh, Way City, the, the ancient city walls uh, in Old Way on yeah. the north side of the river caused the Marines problems and the South Vietnamese army problems. So they have, uh, they, you know, they are significant man-made structures that have to be dealt with, but they don't become the central part of, uh, of the campaign. They're more of a tactical problem as a, than an operational problem. Whereas uh, prior to uh, the 20th century, in 19th century, eight, uh, particularly 18th and 17th century warfare, uh, and all, of course medieval and ancient warfare, the city fortifications are the central Right, they're a problem. strategic problem. Yeah. yeah, strategic, operational, and tactical. Yeah, yeah so uh, as we're looking at these, you know, it's like at a certain point, how do I handle this, right? So you fight into a city, city's in a major objective, correct? So the question comes into before the era, modern era, before the advent of large amounts of high explosives, which turn these walls into perhaps a tactical problem. How do our, how did armies prior to invention of high explosives deal with this? So instead it's a strategic problem, so how did they solve that strategic problem? So what we're really talking about is how do you conduct a siege, right? And uh, yeah. because the siege is how you conduct uh, is how you solve that problem. You uh, and that you know it varies in its in its detail from uh, ancient through medieval uh, into the early modern era. Uh, you know as technology increases and siege uh, weapons become more sophisticated and the city fortifications respond to that. Um, the details of how you conduct siege warfare um, change. And, uh, but the bottom line is that uh, first thing you do is you surround the city and cut it off, uh, which interestingly enough is still uh, a basic principle that you would like to achieve in modern war, uh, 20th and 21st century warfare. 
much more difficult to do given the size of urban areas uh, in the 21st century. But the point is, uh, all sieges, if you want to have a uh, degree of success or an opportunity for success, you have to first isolate the city. And, uh, and that means surround the city. Okay, now, and then you deal with the city fortifications. Now, at that point, so you're dealing with a siege. Now, is that what we would call properly urban warfare, or is that perhaps its own kind of style of warfare here? I, would, I personally would put it under the category of urban warfare uh, because uh, the purpose is to gain control of the urban area, the city. Uh, and, uh, and how far it progresses in terms of does the city uh, surrender uh, without being uh, assaulted? Uh, does this, do you have to mount an assault on the city before uh, the city surrenders? Do you have to uh, capture the entire city before the city surrenders? Those are you know, a function of the tactical details unique to any uh, siege operation. Uh, but uh, but the whole but the fact that you're fighting for control of the city makes it an urban uh, fight, and the uh, the difference is the operational. So strategically, uh, it's urban warfare. Uh, operationally and tactically, how you approach it uh, changes over time because of technology. Uh, but that's all warfare changes over time because of right. technology. So this is, you know, this is no different uh, than saying, you know, Napoleon's maneuver in open battle uh, in uh, in the uh, early 19th century uh, is not fundamentally. I mean, you would you would say that's a battle, mm -hmm. and it, it didn't matter. It doesn't matter that it was done with cavalry and and. Uh, and uh, muskets uh, as opposed to tanks and missiles today, it's still a battle and urban warfare falls into that same category. So a question for both of you, having both been in, in uniform, the normal math is to attack a defended position, you want to have a three to one advantage. How does the math change when you add fortifications, when you add 30 meters of rebar? That's an interesting question because the default answer would obviously be it increases. And some people have said as much as six to one. Uh, but I think that that uh, is not proven out by history um, because uh, there are so many things that you can do to uh, modify the force ratios necessary uh, to conduct successful oper offensive operations, particularly in urban combat. And one of them uh, is surround the city. Mm -hmm. Once the city is surrounded, uh, the psychological effect on the garrison is, uh, is significant. And, uh, and therefore, uh, and, but that can't be measured, but therefore, uh, the traditional kind of force ratios may or may not apply. Uh, another issue that a lot of people don't consider is, um, okay, uh, is it the total force ratio or is it the force ratio at the point of assault? The defender has the challenge of defending the entire city. Uh, the attacker uh, can pick 
where he wants to uh, defend mm -hmm. or, uh, or attack. And so uh, the defender may outnumber in total numbers the attacking force, uh, but at the point of assault, uh, the attacker, since he gets to pick when and where to assault, can establish force ratios that are favorable. Um, historically, uh, what you see, I think, is if a uh, if an urban operation is successfully uh, managed at the operational and strategic level, it doesn't take as many forces as is generally uh, believed necessary. For example, uh, the German city of Aachen in uh, the fall of 1944 is defended uh, by a weak German division, uh, probably somewhere around 5,000 or so troops. The actual assault into the city is conducted by two U.S. infantry battalions, mm -hmm. who in total numbers are probably outnumbered by the defenders two or three to one. Um, and uh, But it doesn't matter because the Germans have to defend everywhere, mm -hmm. and the Americans can concentrate their uh, power on a very narrow frontage that they choose uh, at a time that they choose to conduct the attack. And although the Germans could move uh, defenders to that point of attack, uh, A, uh, the Americans have the ability to interdict that movement, and B, the German commander doesn't know that this is necessarily the main or the only attack. So if he weakens one part of the front to support another part of the front, that might be actually the plan. And, uh, and so there's a limit to what the defender can do in response, uh, even after the attack is, uh, is initiated. And uh, similarly, uh, in 1968, uh, the Marines attack in Hawaii, in the southern part of the city, defended by a North Vietnamese regular army regiment, probably numbering somewhere around two to 3,000 defenders. The Marines attack it uh, initially with uh, probably two rifle companies, and uh, at, uh, at their strongest, the Marines are up to five rifle companies, uh, battalion plus, so you're talking about 1,000 Marines attacking uh, a couple thousand at least, dug in uh, North Vietnamese regulars who have all the advantages of urban terrain, and yet the Marines uh, are uh, very successful. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, numbers uh, are important. There is, you know, a quality in quantity, but uh, a well-orchestrated urban assault uh, can be done by uh, forces uh, at, at force ratios that normally you might not consider favorable to the attacker. So force ratios are, are something to consider, but they are not the, uh, they're not the uh, ultimate calculus for who's going to uh, win. Early modern warfare, different story. Uh, when you're conducting sieges uh, where uh, once you're inside the fortifications, uh, you know, and the technology is rel relatively crude, uh, if, uh, and so it's hand-to-hand -hand combat. Uh, even muskets, you know, uh, smoothbore muskets are not super effective uh, weapon systems at close 
uh, in close combat. In those earlier uh, situations, once the fortifications were were uh, breached, then numbers counted. Mm -hmm. And generally, uh, if uh, the attacker didn't have sufficient numbers, getting inside the walls uh, doesn't really work. But mm -hmm. of course, the reason the defender is usually inside the walls is because he's outnumbered by the attacker. If the in in uh, pre-modern or let's say uh, before the 20th century uh, warfare, if a defender outnumbered the attacker, there would be no reason uh, to not conduct uh, the battle out or in the open field. Right. And so you don't really have so in those situations, how many attackers versus how many defenders uh, is an important calculation. Mm -hmm. uh, but as as I as the Examples I gave illustrate once you get into modern warfare, there's a lot you can do to um, mitigate uh, numerical uh, disadvantages, uh, and uh, and that applies right up into, uh, in some ways, to what's going on in between Russia and Ukraine today. Yeah. And a lot of it also depends on what are your what are your uh, rules of engagement. What are you what are you, the re, what are the re, uh, restrictions you're placing upon yourself or have been placed upon you? Uh, as a for instance in Aachen when we really didn't care what was standing in the city afterwards, we could do things like bring in one five mil one five five millimeter artillery pieces, point them direct uh, level them directly into a stronghold, let loose, have a nice day. Even fighting in the city of Mosul in two thousand and eight. We were firing main gun rounds into buildings from time to time to uh, to pry the enemy out of defense positions. Now, in that particular case, the enemy was not necessarily wanting to stick around, but uh, it proved yeah. highly effective from time to time. But if you are not allowed to use those uh, the that amount of high explosives, now you are faced into a situation where you have to go in and kind of do it man-to-man, -man, as it were. Uh, the other things you want to start taking into account is if you can't isolate a city or if it's equal, if there's not an imbalance, if that follows. In the city of Mosul, in Aachen, and all these places, there was an imbalance in the, force, in the firepower ratio, if that makes sense. Yeah. The Germans were fighting in Aachen. The Germans had some anti-tank guns, some, uh, but mo uh, some artillery, but most of that had been pushed away because of the two divisions, the 1st Infantry Division, and I want to say the 30th Infantry Division, uh, on either side had basically sealed off the, the city from... So this is essentially a pre-modern operation. You you isolate the city. You do what's called masking it, yeah. and then you work your way in. Right. Uh, we... We've taken with masking now that now it's just a doctrinal term is up uh, yeah, isolate but, but a, or contain. A siege officer from seventeen hundred would recognize that operation. Yes. Generally. Yeah. yeah. Because the key uh, is the key to successful urban operations first step at the operational level is to isolate the city. Mm -hmm. If you can't isolate the city, uh, uh, the history shows that either um, you will uh, have difficulty seizing the city, or if you seize the city, you will fight those city defenders again mm -hmm. at some point in the future. Um, and so, uh, and I, but isolating a modern city is not an easy task mm -hmm. uh, because of 
sometimes just because of the terrain. Mm-hmm. Uh, but increasingly in the 21st century and late 20th century because of the size of modern cities. And so, uh, and so some people would argue that isolating a city in the 21st century, you know, when you have uh, mega cities around the world, and if not mega cities, you have urban sprawl, which essentially uh, is uh, uh, unending urban type terrain mm-hmm. uh, across wide spaces like most of Northern Europe or the I-95 corridor in the U.S., which is essentially urban terrain from you know Southern Virginia or North Carolina all the way to Boston. Uh, they would argue, well, you can't isolate a city. I would argue that, yeah, uh, if you define the city in political and uh, uh, and uh, boundary terms, Mm -hmm. Uh, but if you uh, decide you want to conduct uh, urban operations, then what you do is you isolate uh, the city in segments, Mm -hmm. uh, and you reduce those segments systematically one at a time, and therefore uh, you can still uh, apply the principle of isolation, uh, understanding that it's going to have to be modified because of the scale of urban operations today. Now, uh, now, one of the things we can talk about is like a, two mo- uh, fairly modern examples of exactly what you're talking about. So you had the Battle of Talafar, Operation Restoring Rights, and I want to say 2005, 2005. where the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment sur- builds a berm, a dirt wall around the city of Talafar. But this is one of the largest brigade size elements in the United States Army that is then reinforced with additional dismounted infantry in order to make this happen. And the Talafar, if you've ever looked at it on a map, is not a large city. It's uh, maybe a little bit bar- larger than the town of Leavenworth, maybe maybe touched larger, but not. it's not a huge geographical area. It's a town, not a city. And then you look at the city of Mosul, Battle of Mosul in 2018, where the coalition forces had to, go, had to fight into the city and they were isolating the city, but they were actually using UAV and air power often to truly get the true isolation. Because Mosul, while not a gigantic city like as you're talking about the I-95 corridor, it's so still a, it's still a big city. It's a big well, city. The interesting thing here is this is not a problem that some people in the pre-modern period wouldn't recognize. So in the in the Peloponnesian War in the first year. The Spartans march up to Athens, and they have these walls that go around Athens and their port, and the Spartans have no siege equipment. So they can't possibly surround a, I think it's nine miles from Athens to the Piraeus, multiplied by twice, because you've got to surround it, right? They can't possibly surround the city. Same thing in medieval warfare. Your 150 knights cannot surround a city. So I think this also, it kind of waxes and wanes throughout history. An early modern army could surround a city completely, but a medieval one, maybe not. No, although some medieval armies uh, are sufficiently large or the geography supports, I think, in the Hundred Years' War. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, the, the Siege of the, Orléans. Yeah, well, the, the, the British marched yeah. down the coast and, and, uh, and systematically right. isolate coastal f- French cities, and then yeah. they surrender or they, or yeah. they take them. Uh, but those are small cities, and they have the advantage of... Uh, of because they're on the coast, the circumference is not as as large as it would be, and uh, 
and they have control of the sea, which right. helps isolate those cities. So, you know, uh, but it's always kind of the goal, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and the uh, and if you can achieve it, great. You know, the problem is um, achieving it, and so what I you know, and what you find is both in most cases, not always, uh, both the defender and the attacker understand that once the city is isolated. Uh, things become significantly more difficult for the defenders. And so what you often have is a fight over isolation, uh, where the defender is fighting to keep from being isolated and the attacker is trying to isolate the city. This Aachen is a great example in the sense of in 1944, the Germans understand that once that city is surrounded, the 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 one of the oldest, most culturally significant cities in Germany. Charlemagne's seat. Exactly. Uh, is going to, you know, the First Reich. Uh, right. Is going to be captured, and it's the first major German city, well, the first German city that's going to be captured. So there's uh, there's a huge amount of poli uh, political, uh, uh, political influence at stake here. And so the Germans, uh, and, they under, and the German high command understands that uh, there are military reasons as well, but the German command understands that once that city is isolated, they've lost it. And so uh, most of the 1st Infantry Division and, almost, and all of the 30th Infantry Division are committed to fighting outside the city mm -hmm. uh, to achieve that isolation. And the German, uh, the German High Command on the Western Front understands that, and they throw all their reserves uh, particularly their best uh, mobile divisions, the 5th Panzer Grenadier Division, I want to say, and the Panzer Lair Division, I think. No, 11th Panzer Division, I think. Also, no, the 11th was down south. Or no, maybe it was the Panzer Lair Division. Either way, uh, two mechanized divisions uh, are committed to keep the city from being right. isolated. Uh, and the... Uh, and then once it is isolated, then only two U U.S. battalions are required to actually go into the city mm -hmm. and uh, and take on the garrison. Of the well, city but you, but this that battle was a was a field on, on the American side. We talked about that it was the first and the thirtieth, but it wasn't just them. It was the bulk of the U.S. Seventh Corps and the bulk of the U.S. Nineteenth Corps. So we are basically talking a field, field army. One of four on the U.S. order of battle. And this is an important thing that happens in pre-modern. Uh, urban conflict too, where the defenders know to look for opportunities to sally. I think we may call that a spoiling attack now. But the idea is you want to keep the ring from closing and as the enemy spreads themselves out to isolate they're vulnerable. So if you can pick off individuals, you can keep the ring open. Especially yeah. a city that can't water itself. Right. And in earlier uh, warfare, the uh, one of the dangers to the sieging forces was uh, a field army and being outside the city mm -hmm. because setting yourself up for a siege makes you vulnerable uh, to uh, a, a relieving army and the uh, and so having a force outside the city that uh, that has the po even just the potential mm -hmm. of uh, of executing a relief operation affects whether a the siege is successful or whether you conduct the siege at all uh, because you don't want to, if you have, if you don't have enough forces to both besiege a city and uh, conduct field op and and conduct a field battle against 
a uh, a relieving army, then and that relieving army is out there, then you can't do it. Uh, and a a you know an example is this is a problem that Frederick the Great has, mm-hmm. you know, uh, repeatedly is that uh, if uh, his various opponents can force him into uh, committing his army to a siege, and they have and t- and often they did have enough forces. Uh, to have an army roaming around there, uh, Frederick would have the choice of one or the other. Which he does do at Prague and right. fails at both. Right, because yeah. uh, you, you, you he splits his army right. and, uh, and, doesn't, and doesn't have uh, sufficient manpower to do both operations. Mm-hmm. So what you're kind of highlighting is, is that kind of the prerequisite, if you're going to go into a successful urban, op- if you want a successful urban operation, you have to have dominance in at least one domain, and I'm going to use land, sea, and air. And you you probably want multiple if you can pull it off, but you at least need one. Yeah, I would argue that uh, for urban operations, the land domain is is the is the decisive domain. Uh, you know, you can say multi-domain operations are kind of ubiquitous, but not really. It depends on the terrain. Uh, favor certain uh, capabilities. You know, uh, the South Pacific or the uh, the Western Pacific is clearly dominated by the geography of of the oceans, and so the sea domain and the air domain are going to be much more decisive than the land domain. Not that the land domain doesn't have uh, a role in that theater. When you're talking urban operations, though, you know. People have argued, uh, and and I don't want to go down this rat hole too far, but people have argued that the strategic bombing campaign of uh, Japan and uh, and Europe, uh, Germany, uh, in World War II, were air domain urban operations mm-hmm. designed to you know attack the urban area and its infrastructure and its populations and. Uh, and of course, uh, the goal was to, uh, in both cases, was to, you know, in accordance with air power theory, either compel the the uh, enemy to surrender using American strategic bombing doctrine uh, by uh, eliminating their capacity to wage war, or British strategic bombing doctrine, more classical Duhay. Uh, eliminating the will of the German people to prosecute the war. Both fail, mm-hmm. uh, minus nuclear weapons in, in, mm-hmm. at the end of the war in Japan, but both using conventional weapons fail. And so I would argue that air domain is not going to dominate urban operations uh, just because you can rain all kinds of destruction uh, onto the city. You can destroy the city from the air, but you still are not going to uh, compel the enemy to your will until you actually occupy the city. Now, you know, uh, how do you do that in in modern war uh, where you either physically can't surround the city because the city is so big or the urban terrain is so large or uh, or your army, because modern professional armies are so small that even uh, a battle like Aachen, which is kind of a mid-size battle by World War II standards, 
involves about three divisions, uh, maybe four if you're real generous. Uh, so it's although it's split across two corps, uh, neither corps is fully committed uh, mm -hmm. to the battle because they different. Uh, uh, subject, but the core boundary essentially runs through the city. But the point is that um, it's a mid-sized battle, but four divisions on the scale of, of how big modern 21st century armies are is almost half the U.S. Army. Right, uh, right. So before we talk, uh, circle back to that talk about modern warfare, I want to talk about one point of sure. pre-modern urban combat, which is something you don't see much anymore. Often, when you had particularly a, a city taken by force as opposed to surrendering, what would follow would be the sack. Because, of course, these are largely unprofessional soldiers. Their payment is what they take with them. So what, what is a sack, and what, what's the, how does that fit into this concept of pre-modern warfare? Well, uh, so a sack is essentially, uh, you know, the the spoils of the city uh, and it's and even I think in pre-modern warfare it's it's uh, when it happens because it doesn't always happen um, it's indicative of the type of army that are employed and so you know um, you're more familiar with this than I am but the uh, I think it's what is it is it Magdeburg uh, in the Thirty Years' War mm -hmm. that uh, it's essentially destroyed. Destroyed, and why is it destroyed? Well, the the whole campaign plan was to seize the city to use it as a base for future operations, and that's of course you know at the strategic and operational level. Uh, but the nature of mercenary armies uh, uh, who need to be paid, and uh, what ends up happening is. Uh, uh, combination of the siege lasts much longer. The city refuses to surrender. Uh, in in early modern warfare, supplying the the sieging army, the uh, the army that's in the offense, is a major uh, is a major uh, challenge. Uh, just to move the the amount of food that you need to feed an army in the field. Uh, over a period of weeks or months as the siege goes on. And then what ends up happening is, especially with mercenary troops who are there for profit, mm -hmm. uh, the longer they're in the field, the smaller the profit margin becomes. And so ultimately, they take the city, uh, but the mercenary troops want to be paid uh, and, and, uh, and they want uh, compensation for the travails of a long, uh, and difficult siege, and mm -hmm. so they take it out of the of the population and the infrastructure of the city, and ultimately, uh, the city is useless as a supply base afterwards. Mm -hmm. And so, although they win the battle, they lose the war. So, one of the things that I want to kind of start drilling in, because we've been talking about outside the city for the most part, and we talked about sacking the city, so we're kind of moving into the city. So let's maybe confine ourselves to kind of modern era, so kind of World War One, World War Two, forward. What are the very specific problems of fighting inside of a city? Uh, with high explosives, with rapid fire weaponry, with armored vehicles, what, uh, what does fighting in a city look like and how is that different than any other kind of fight? Well, I know that's what you want to talk about, but let me, 
let me talk to how you go from the siege, and okay. I'll, I'll make this quick, uh, from how you go to a siege to what is essentially modern urban warfare. Because there's a very, I think, a very um, direct uh, <coughs> evolutionary line. Uh, what ends up happening uh, towards the end of the 18th century and in the early uh, part of the 19th century is you have this period, uh, the Enlightenment, uh, uh, where uh, there are advances across the whole spectrum of society, particularly in things like agriculture and uh, science and medicine, and populations explode. Uh, and uh, as the rural population uh, becomes labor less labor intensive, uh, because of advances in agriculture, you have a, uh, a labor pool in the countryside that's essentially not needed. At the same time, you have the beginnings of industrialization and there's a need in the urban areas for labor. And to, give, to give you a statistic on this, uh, the population of France in 1700 is 20 million. By 1789, it's 28 million. Yes, yeah, so there you go. And, and that population uh, increase, and this, is ha this has happened in the late 20th century in the developing countries in the world. In Europe, it happens in the 18th century and in the early part of the 19th century, and that rural population moves to the cities. All of a sudden, you've got way more people uh, than the cities have ever had before. Fortified cities uh, where you build a wall around the city, uh, building that wall as uh, artillery uh, becomes more and more sophisticated, the walls become more sophisticated, uh, thicker and and deeper and uh, more intricate yeah. and, mo and most importantly, more expensive. Uh, to where ultimately, uh, as the city population increases 50% over a 10-year period, they can't afford to build city walls around that new pop the population sprawls outside the walls and they can't afford it's not economical to build uh, the walls to surround the city anymore so what you see in the 18th century is they start to make decisions well we're not going to fortify this city and the and the first the first cut is we're only going to fortify the cities along our perceived borders uh, where the enemy might come and then we can stop them at the borders and so we don't have to fortify Paris anymore we just got to fortify along the frontiers We're done. Uh, and yeah. Vienna and there's a whole yeah. bunch of places where they make these decisions especially in the large capital cities uh, but even def uh, fortifying the uh, border cities uh, becomes uh, problematic in terms of expense and now we're into the 19th century. And in the 19th century, you have a, uh, a very dramatic uh, evolution in small arms technology, as well as cannon technology. But I think small arms technology is the more important of the two. And what happens there is prior to uh, breech loading, rapid fire, accurate small arms, so we're talking American Civil War time frame. Prior to that, uh, when the infantry weapon was the, uh, the musket, rifled musket or smoothbore musket, the rate of fire was such 
that once you got inside the city walls, essentially numbers counted more than firepower because in order to get those muskets to be effective, you had to have large formations. The city inside the wall prevents large formations. And so once the breach occurred, yeah, muskets could be somewhat effective, but really it was close combat, bayonets, and the numbers that counted until you get rapid fire, breach loading, accurate small arms. And now five guys in a building can hold off a 100 guys outside the building because those their small arms that they're armed with, they have the protection of the building, and the small arms that they're armed with are extremely fast shooting and very accurate and easy uh, to maintain. And, uh, and therefore, every building now becomes a mini fortress. And so there's no need for the external walls at all because each building is a fortress, and now your numbers don't count so much. And now we're to the problem of how do you deal with the modern city defended by, uh, you know, by infantry uh, with, you know, let's call it high technology weapons. Starts out with small arms, you know, rifles that are breech loading and rapid fire, but then quickly machine guns and then all the other weapons that you mentioned. You know, now you're talking as the 20th century goes on, anti-tank weapons and mines and etc. Also, at the same time, a growing sense that war should not involve civilians, which of course is a particular problem in urban spaces. Yeah, although uh, a problem for Western-oriented armies, uh, not a problem for. Uh, authoritarian states or uh, or armies with uh, a non-Western focused uh, culture and so the Japanese don't see the population of Manila uh, or, or Nanjing yeah or Nanking uh, uh, as a major issue in the fight the Russians don't see urban pop the Soviets I should say in World War two don't see the urban populations as I mean, there there are there are some impacts, but they are not the major a major consideration for the military leaders of the Soviet Union. Really, for the Nazi uh, German uh, military leaders, they don't see uh, other than their own civilian populations. They don't see civilian populations as a significant uh, impediment to how they conduct operations. And to a lesser extent, the Americans, if it's an enemy civilian population, although uh, the Americans are somewhat sensitive to it, um, the, uh, the uh, you know, as, as Bill mentioned earlier, the Americans are willing to use direct fire artillery in Aachen. Uh, they're somewhat, and you know, the standard in World War II for Americans clearing a building is uh, grenades first uh, before you ever enter, uh, and then uh, you go in uh, shooting. And, uh, and of course, if there are civilians in there, you don't know. You assume that there's enemy in there, and you throw the grenades in the, you know, uh, in the, uh, in the windows or, or through the door before you ever go in. And, and oftentimes, troops would then go in and find that, yeah, there's no enemy, but guess where the civilian population, and this is particularly true in cellars, because mm -hmm. of artillery, the cellars were always the safest place for civilians, probably still are in large in a large urban fight, and the way you clear a cellar is you, before you go down there, you throw grenades down into the cellar, and, and if there are no enemy combatants down there, 
uh, but civilians, there is no way even in the 21st century of determining who's in that cellar, but that's still kind of the standard uh, uh, clearing methodology for subterranean positions. Let's pick that apart. So we're talking about, okay, I'm going to lead with grenades and then go in shooting. So why is it, and some of it might be somewhat uh, perhaps obvious if you think about it for a minute, but let's pick this apart. Why is that the preferred methodology for uh, for entering and clearing a room or going into a cell? Well, and I said it's the preferred me methodology. I think that the assumption there is that what we're talking about here is large-scale combat operations. You know, if you're talking anything less than large-scale combat operations, uh, particularly if you're talking some type of counterinsurgency uh, urban scenario, then those techniques, which are the standard techniques in conventional peer-on-peer -peer, uh, uh, force operations, don't apply. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, complete, and that, and so, you know, kind of one of the things that commanders have to decide early on in a, is what kind of war are we in? Uh, in OIF, uh, particularly OIF-1, Operation Iraqi Freedom 1, in 2003 and into 2004, uh, we had a, a, there was confusion, I think, among many American Army senior leaders. What kind of war are we in? Mm -hmm. And in particular, uh, some of our senior leadership prior to 2003, we had... Uh, studied Israeli urban operations techniques in Operation Defensive Shield in 2002, uh, where the Israelis launched a multi-division operation into the West Bank to eliminate uh, what, from the Israeli perspective, was considered uh, terrorist strongholds in a variety, I think five or six major cities in, in the West Bank. Uh, they shared their uh, lessons learned with the U.S. Army. What some U.S. Army senior leaders failed to perceive is that the Israeli strategic situation and operational requirements uh, are significantly different than what we were facing in Iraq, and therefore the tactics needed to reflect that. And so for the Israelis, a standard tactic is if you take fire from a building, you uh, get uh, armored bulldozers and you knock down that building. Uh, well, if you, uh, and they didn't really care what the Palestinian civilian population thought of them because A, uh, the Palestinians were never gonna like them. Uh, they weren't trying to win hearts and minds. And, uh, and B, they didn't plan on staying in that city. They were there to eliminate uh, terrorist bomb-making capability and, uh, and the leadership, and then leave, go mm -hmm. back to, to into Israel proper. Whereas the U.S. Army in Iraq uh, was trying to convince the civilians, uh, the civilian population, and win them over to this idea of a democratic Iraq, and that the U.S. presence was temporary but benign, and uh, and so uh, if you knock down somebody's building with a bulldozer. Uh, you're not winning hearts and minds. You're probably making more enemies in the future. It, which is exactly what we were doing in 2003 and 2004, and it's not until about 2005 that some of the U.S. Army leadership begins to figure out that 
uh, our tactics, the, uh, our standard urban warfare tactics, m many of which we had learned from the Israelis or had verified by the Israelis, because some of these tactics go back to World War II, Korea, etc. But uh, that those uh, tactics did not match our strategic objectives, uh, and and we needed to change that. And you don't see that changing until about 2006, and then in 2007 with General Petraeus's arrival, you see where uh, the the strategic and operational objectives. Uh, change and the tactics are uh, are adjusted to, to be in sync with them. And, and it's hard. I mean, uh, you know, having done this, it's like entering and clearing a room is one of the most dangerous things you will ever do in your life because you can't see through walls. And if a door is closed, you don't know what's on the other side of that door. So you got a guy with a rifle trained right on the door when you go through the door, however you choose to, to breach that doorway, whether it's explosive, whether you just open the door, whether you kick it down, however it is, you've got about one millisecond to, now everyone's got to have one millisecond because that guy trained with a rifle trained on it also has to make a choice. But you uh, there's a point where one person kind of fills one door and how most of them are designed, uh, and you've got to come through, we call it the fatal funnel for a reason. It's the number one way to die is to be the number one stack, number one man in the stack going through, and you have to figure out if that person is hostile, neutral, or perhaps even friendly, and, and we, you know, in a complex room, where it's not just you open a door and you can see the whole room from the doorway, if there's little side nooks, if there's furniture, all of a sudden that becomes very, very challenging and very, very dangerous for the people entering the room. And this is one of the reasons why, like in you know, in World War II, they solved the problem with, oh, I'll just toss a grenade, a, a couple of grenades well, let's, in. I want to walk down that path a little bit, right? Because I think yeah. people often think of World War II as Patton sailing across northern France and lots of field battles, right? Uh, but Patton gets hung up on Metz, which is an old, old fortress in northeast France. So what's, what's the problem Patton faces at Metz, and how does he, how does he deal with it? The, the funny story about that one, and as the early modern scholar asked the question, is what held up Patton was not the cities of the city of Metz. What held up Patton was actually the early modern fortresses of Metz, which are uh, gigantic concrete. Uh, Dr. Mark, are you going to take that further? Or? Well, yeah. I mean, if you look at Patton, Patton was a smart guy. And so if you look at how the, the, the Battle of Metz, as an example, the Battle of Nancy is also structured uh, very similarly. The, the city is on a river, the Moselle River. Uh, Patton attacks it indirectly. Uh, the 20th Corps is responsible for Metz. First thing the 20th Corps commander does is he concentrates his combat power around the city. They have about a 90, I want to say 90, I don't have the map in front of me to measure it exactly, but about a 90 mile frontage for the Corps. And the bulk of that frontage is covered by the 3rd Armored Cavalry, uh, reinforced uh, along the river line. So allowing the armor and infantry divisions, particularly, I think he had three infantry divisions and one armored division, um, uh, to focus around Metz. 
then the city is captured by first executing uh, uh, what we would call today wet gap crossings of the Moselle, two of them, one north of the city, one south of the city. Those two infantry divisions then attack past Metz. Mm -hmm. and, and then the goal is for them to meet on the other side of Metz. And ultimately, when they do finally go into Metz, kind of what we talked about extensively already is uh, the city is surrounded. And then they attack uh, from, instead of attacking from uh, west to east, uh, once the city is surrounded, the actual main attack comes from the east, attacking back west uh, uh, into the city. And, uh, and that attack, by then the city is now isolated, the garrison knows that they're isolated, and the amount of combat power actually used to go into the city of Metz is I want it, less than a division, uh, whereas uh, three or four divisions are used to set up the fight for Metz. Uh, once it's set up properly with the city isolated um, and the attack coming now uh, not across the river from the west, but rather from uh, behind the city from the American perspective, mm -hmm. uh, attacking from uh, east to the west. Uh, the, uh, the capture of the city, although they still have the problem of, you know, at the tactical level, you're always going to have this problem of how do we go and capture this building? That mm -hmm. doesn't go away. Uh, but it's much easier to do when the guys defending the building know they're surrounded. Uh, much easier to do when they're not the guys defending the city aren't getting supplies, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the you know so there's a psychological uh, aspect to being isolated, and there's the physical fact that you're not getting reinforcements and supplies, and those combine to make the city fight uh, much easier. And still, although the attack is coming from the east, the defenders don't know that. Uh, the Americans have the ability of attacking from the north along now uh, without a river crossing because they've secured uh, the far uh, the eastern side of the Moselle. They have the option of attacking from the north. They have the option of attacking from the south. They have forces uh, still set uh, on the riverbank and they can come from the east and the defender has to defend everywhere. So at the point of attack to get the combat ratios that you need is much easier. Uh, and so it's a great example. So there, you know, there isn't uh, a there isn't a uh, decisive battle for Mets because once the actual battle happens, uh, the uh, the results are uh, are uh, predictable because it's almost the city, a fait accompli. Yeah, it, it's it's similar to uh, ancient uh, or mid or early modern uh, urban warfare. Once you isolate the city. Uh, barring supply problems or a relieving force, uh, you're going to win. And the city will often just give up. Yeah, because uh, no. they know that. Right. And and certainly they're not going to fight. Even in World War II, when these German garrisons are isolated, they're not going to, especially against the Americans, because they know they're going to be treated well when they become POWs. The fight is not that hard. The Eastern Front, different story. When the garrison knows that... You know, to kind of go to your point of uh, sacking a city, right. when the Soviet army, which is, you know, Soviet soldiers, not as strictly disciplined, sometimes intentionally not as strictly disciplined, or 
governed by the rules of uh, the law of war in terms of treatment of a garrison uh, and the civilian population, those German uh, garrisons on the Eastern Front are much likely to put up a stout uh, defense to the last man than they are on the Western Front. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so there's a big, and that's a psych, that is a reflection of the psychological uh, aspect of the urban fight. Uh, Germans by 1944, German ar army soldiers know uh, many of them know that the Reich is in its last stages. Most of them know that they're going to be treated well as POWs. And, uh, and then once they're surrounded, uh, their propensity to fight to the death against the American or the British Army is significantly less than what it is on the Eastern Front. Even like the vicious fight, like uh, the city of Brest, one of the, now Brest is an example of the Germans held, holding on for an extended period of time. But that was more American impatience. Eisenhower had said, I want this done, even though Brest had become functionally meaningless by the time we actually attacked, and we had to fight through it. Now, uh, by the time we'd finished Brest, we'd realize how expensive that was, because it basically took a, a, couple, a couple divisions, significant casualties yeah. to get in there. Patton learns from this and goes, and if you look at most American reduction, and notice the terminology they use, reductions of cities, yep. where Metz is surrounded, Aachen is surrounded, and then slowly reduced. Mm -hmm. The difference, of course, being on the Eastern Front, if you look at the Battle of Budapest and Berlin, these are, what would the term, uh, the term that comes to mind in mind is apocalyptic. Would yeah. you agree with that one? Yeah, and, and again, a, a, a major reason is the Germans don't want to surrender this, their civilian population or the Hungarian civilian population to the Soviet army. It's an ideological war. And, yeah, and uh, and the penalty to the civilian population is going to be uh, significant. And Brest's Brest, uh, Battle of Brest in, in the summer of 1944 is interesting because it reflects um, back to kind of where we started this. Why do you take cities in the first place? And the original overlord plan was that the logistics base of the Allies would be in the Brittany uh, Peninsula, where the, the, the great French, all the great French Atlantic ports are, Brest and Saint-Nazaire. Uh, there's four ports, and four or five Milo is one that they captured. Uh, Cherbourg. Uh, but the point that they learn, and they begin to see it in Cherbourg. Cherbourg is captured uh, in June. I think uh, end of June, and uh, the uh, and it takes like 60 days to get the port into operation. Right. Brest is captured uh, in, by the end of August, I think. September. Is it early? Okay. Brest is, never becomes operational as a port during the war. Mm -hmm. The plan called for them to capture the other Brittany ports, uh, and uh, and once they get into Brest and they see the extent of the German. Uh, sabotage to the port facilities and realize uh, the extensive engineering work that it's going to take and the time it's going to take to get these ports operational, the American Army goes, well, we're not taking these other ports. And so the other Brittany ports do not surrender until after the war ends. Mm -hmm. So there are German garrisons in Saint-Nazaire uh, until, uh, you know, May of 1945. Uh, mm -hmm. And the uh, and they're eating rats. Uh, they let the civilian populations go. 
and the Americans use those pos those German positions as a breaking in combat experience for new units that arrive in theater. Mm -hmm. So when a new division arrives in Europe, they send them to Brittany, they relieve a division in the siege of Saint-Nazaire, they occupy the defensive positions around the city, they do patrolling, they shoot artillery, they get all kinds of kind of uh, experience against an active enemy, and then after about 30 days or so, they, they've kind of worked out the kinks, and then they redeploy them to the main front lines deeper in France or, or wherever the front lines are at that point in the war. And the point there is, cities have uh, a utility, and that's why you capture them. And when they don't have those uti that utility, you don't capture them. And uh, the Allied High Command uh, uh, understood that. And, uh, and they were not capturing cities just for the sake of capturing cities. And you don't pay the price to take that city either. Yeah, it's a huge you know, military cost, and there has to be a huge military or political uh, dividend. And, and often the political dividend outweighs the military dividend. Paris is a great example mm -hmm. of that, where Eisenhower, as the Allies approach Paris, Eisenhower and the Chafe High Command's inclination is, we're not going to capture Paris, because Paris has a population, I think at that time... It's four million? Yeah, four or five million people. And they're like, well, the, the, the tonnage of supplies, because no modern urban area... Uh, is self-sustaining. They all rely on the import of food and fuel uh, to keep the population alive. And so the Shafe staff uh, analysis is uh, the amount of tonnage in terms of uh, food and fuel that we would have to ship into the into Paris to sustain that civilian population at a minimum level would equal the amount of supplies to equip five infantry divisions. And in that campaign across France, uh, the Allies were very short of transportation assets. You know, the Red Ball Express is barely keeping the armies moving. And, you know, at various critical times, Patton runs out of gas. The entire U.S. Army is, is, uh, calls a halt to offensive operations to support so that the, all the supplies can go to the British. So they have a supply problem that's massive. And Eisenhower says, we're not taking on five million French uh, uh, mouths to feed in the, in the city of Paris. Unfortunately, de Gaulle and the free French have a, and the, you know, France, the French population at large, but the French military forces working with the Americans have a completely different political agenda. Mm -hmm. And de Gaulle, uh, you know, doesn't really care what Eisenhower thinks, and he uses his free French forces in order to uh, liberate the city, despite the Americans' not just reluctance, but the uh, unwillingness to do so, because de Gaulle is concerned about uh, the French uh, political situation and the large uh, resistance forces in Paris are dominated by the French Communist Party. Yep. And so de Gaulle's view is, if I'm going to establish uh, uh, my political faction as the dominant, I, I've got to, we have to liberate Paris. If the communists liberate Paris in post-war France, 
that will be a huge political uh, feather in the communist French Communist Party's cap. And de Gaulle wants to deny them that political advantage. So the French force the liberation of Paris, even though it's to the uh, disadvantage of the military campaign for French domestic political reasons, which Eisenhower doesn't care about, but which he gets stuck with. Right. So let's kind of start putting a bow on this a little bit. So we've been yeah. talking about urban operations really from the medieval era through the early modern era up through World War II, Vietnam, etc. So what's kind of the big takeaways about fighting in a city that people should kind of stick in their brain pan when they start talking about military operations? I would say one of them is what we just talked about. Oftentimes, um, you have to fight, uh, I won't say all, uh, more often, but certainly oftentimes you have to fight for a city uh, that has no apparent military advantage, but for political, and we didn't really talk about this a lot, but, or religious or ideological reasons, you know, Stalingrad is important because it's called Stalingrad. Right, or Jerusalem, uh, great example. Right, yeah. and Jerusalem is important because of the, the intersection of three major, uh, the world's three major organized religions, uh, and, and is still important for that reason. Uh, and so these things have nothing to do with what a military commander might want to do, but war is about politics, and therefore, uh, and in some places, Politics is about religion, mm -hmm. and therefore uh, military considerations are often just secondary. So I think that's one of the huge things you have to understand about urban operations. Uh, another thing I think you have to understand about urban operations is that um, the uh, that the uh, the forces required to uh, the urban operation has to be structured so that um, in a, uh, by the campaign. And we didn't really talk about this a lot, so I'll throw this in there as, a, you know, the best way to take a capture a city uh, is to capture it without it being defended, before it's defended. And so, and to do that, you have to think about the urban fight well before you get into the urban fight. The worst way to approach a city is to force an enemy gradually to fall back on the city defenses, where as he's falling back, uh, and this happens in Stalingrad, uh, where uh, uh, they are preparing a deliberate defense of the city and you get there and they're ready for you. The best way to do it is to show up at the city un unannounced. Uh, one of the interesting campaigns of World War II that's not considered an urban campaign but should be is Operation Market Garden, where uh, everybody knows that the purpose of Market Garden was to capture key bridges in route to the bridge at Arnhem across the Rhine River. What they, the connection that they don't make is these key bridges are all either in or on the edge of urban areas. And the whole, uh, the whole structure of the plan was to get to those bridges before they could be defended. And the way they were going to do it was through an airborne uh, assault. Mm -hmm. And and it's successful in Eindhoven, and it's successful uh, near Run, but successful in Nijmegen, and it's unsuccessful in Arnhem. But uh, those were urban fights that didn't happen in the cities 
or the towns be except in Arnhem uh, because the airborne forces got there before the Germans could defend it. Mm-hmm. And that was that's the best way to do an airborne or an urban fight is to get there before the city is defended. Seoul in 1950, the Incheon landings land behind the North Korean army. And although there is a fight for Seoul, it's not nearly the fight that it would have been had the um, had they just fought steadily up from the Pusan Peninsula and allowed the North Korean army to fall back on uh, on the uh, urban area of Seoul. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead. Uh, you know, although there's a fight, the resistance is significantly less because the Marines get there before the the North Korean army is prepared to fight them. Uh, and so getting there before the enemy is, uh, if you can do it, but that requires uh, detailed planning and consideration before, uh, uh, ahead of time, uh, with the urban area as kind of your objective. Uh, even though, and and that means you've got to be thinking it as a operate as an operational level or a strategic problem as opposed to a tactical problem. Right. Um, and um, and so I think those are. And then the one we kind of beat to death is this isolation issue. Another urban fight that doesn't happen is uh, you know a lot of people don't realize that Seoul changes hands four times during the Korean War. And there's never really a significant, other than the Marines who do have somewhat of a fight in uh, in September of 1950. There's never a real significant fight, and the uh, for the city itself. And the last time that Seoul changes hands is in 1951 when it's recaptured by the Allies, and the Chinese who had occupied Seoul, Chinese army, uh, does is not fought is not forced out of the city directly. But its supply lines uh, north of Seoul are threatened uh, by an Allied offensive that takes place and uh, uh, to the uh, to the east of Seoul. And as that Allied breakthrough occurs, the Chinese are faced with the problem of if we stay in Seoul, we'll be isolated and we lose the forces mm-hmm. there, or we give up Seoul and keep from, and in the case of Seoul in 1951, the Chinese choose to avoid isolation and withdraw. So uh, there is no uh, fourth battle for Seoul because the Chinese give it up because of the threat of isolation. And so this idea of isolation, which we talked a lot about, is a is a, also a key. Isolation, uh, understanding the non-military significance of urban areas, and then if you can structure it right, uh, capturing a city before it's defended. Hue, 1968, the, 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 uh, the entire city is captured by the North Vietnamese in one night mm-hmm. because they take advantage of surprise and the Tet holiday uh, and the city is not defended. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it takes a month to take the city back when right. it is defended. Right. No, it's, a, it's been a fascinating discussion, Dr. DeMarco, thank you. Okay. If you like this episode, please make sure to check out our other podcast, Broad Gauge Gossips, where we talk to members of the Department of Military History faculty so you can get to know them.